take your copy of God's Word and turn to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. This morning we begin a month-long study looking at the life of somebody absolutely incredible. This is someone who had a miraculous birth. His mother should never have been pregnant, but she became pregnant miraculously. This is somebody who had an angel prophesy their birth, appearing to both his mother and then to his father, telling them that their child would have a special mission in life, given directly by God to save his people. This person's people were under captivity, and he was the person born to be their savior. The Bible describes their birth, and then the Bible skips over their life until the last three years of their life. And finally, this person died when he was arrested by his own people, betrayed by his own people, turned over to the Gentiles who were occupying the country at the time, where he died a humiliating and public death in front of a crowd mocking him for the claims that he made. Of course, this is Samson, although all of those things are true about our Savior. And we're going to see how those match up as we go through the life of Samson. Samson occupies Judges chapter 13 all the way through chapter 16. He is the 12th and final judge. And he really occupies the the most famous portion of the book of Judges. You don't hear much of these other judges that often. Samson's the most famous. But he's one of the most misunderstood judges. That's why I want to to take our time through Judges 13 through 16. We're going to look at 13 this morning. We'll probably take it a chapter at a time, but then I want us to go backwards at the very end of our time and just look at what we're supposed to learn, receive, understand, and, and think and live differently based on the life of Samson. He's a very interesting character. But though Samson takes up these chapters and is definitely the hero of these chapters, he's not the hero of the book of Judges. God is the hero of the book of Judges. God is the hero of the Bible. And so this morning we are going to see God's heroic deeds in four different ways in Judges chapter 13. So before we dive in, let me pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Father, we thank you for another opportunity that we have to study your word. There's just nothing better than getting together, gathering as the people of God, hearing you speak to us through your word, and seeing new things, new insights that we've never seen before. Your word is a bottomless uh, minefield of glowing gems and uh, there's, there's so much that we can take from it of gold and silver and diamonds and precious metals and lazy people won't see those things. And so God, I pray that you would give us an attentiveness and a strength in mind and in heart this morning to be able to mine the depths of this chapter. But ultimately, God, if we did the work on our own with our fleshly eyes, with our physical spirit, we would not see what it is that your word intends for us to see, because your word is a spiritual, supernatural book. And so we ask, Father, that you'd be pleased to enable your spirit to open our eyes. We need his help and the gift of illumination that he alone gives to truly understand the purpose and the point of Judges 13. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work. We humbly submit ourselves to your working this morning as you take the word that you have written so many years ago, and a preserve for this many years. And you take it like a scalpel, that two-edged sword that is 
going to pierce the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. Do the work that only you can do. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Four different ways that we're going to split up Judges chapter 13. So the first thing that I want us to see is, number one, God's amazing grace. God is the hero of the story of Samson, and we're just going to see the birth narrative of Samson this morning. But God's amazing grace uh, is really the, the prevalent theme in this entire chapter and the entirety of the book of the Bible. But in verse 1, you are going to see God's grace on display in maybe new ways, maybe different ways, maybe ways that you wouldn't have expected to see it. So verse 1, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's not new information. That's the cyclical uh, book of Judges. They keep falling back into sin. So God gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. That's also not new information. We've seen that. As they fall into sin, God hands them over into servitude. This time it's the Philistines. Uh, this shows the plurality and the diversity of the Israelites' polytheism. There's so many gods out there that Israel just keeps worshiping a different god. Midianite god, Ammonite god. Now we're up to the Philistines' god. So the Philistines' god is a guy by the name of Dagon. Um, for all intents and purposes, he's, he's Aquaman. He's, he's, he's a half man, half fish. Um, I'm going to show you a couple of pictures uh, next week. But he's, he's a strange-looking individual. Some think that he looks really fierce. Some thinks he looks like a silly caricature. But he is the God that these Israelites are now worshiping and serving. This time the oppression is 40 years. Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is helpful for us. In the sight of the Lord. They did evil in God's sight. In whose sight is incredibly important for us. Because if you were to ask the Israelites, are you doing something wrong? In their eyes, they're not doing anything wrong. And that's really the whole point of the book of Judges. They are doing that which is right in their own eyes. They think that they are doing what is right. But in God's eyes, it is evil. And this tells us two things about sin. Number one, it gives us the definition of sin. Sin cannot be defined by our own eyes. This is the world that we live in, right? This is moral relativity. Whatever is true to you and whatever is right to you, whatever seems okay to you, that's right. But therefore, you are your own standard of what is right or wrong. You are doing what's right in your eyes, but your eyes are not good enough to bring about a standard, an absolute standard of morality. The only way that we can know what is right truly and wrong truly is to have a standard outside of ourselves. And that's God's word. God has given us a standard. So the only way to know what is evil in God's sight is to go to the word of God. Secondly, it tells us about the deceitfulness of sin. We are so easily deceived. We think that something is right when it's actually wrong. And therefore, as we've been talking about in Sunday school, we, we should be very careful to bring people around us constantly in discipleship, constantly in fellowship, constantly reading the scriptures so that those things around us can help us see where we might think we're doing something right in our own eyes, but actually according to the word of God, it's not right. It's wrong. These things might not look too bad in their eyes. They might not look too bad in our eyes, but that might be because we're rationalizing them or we can't see them. There is a, a log in our eyes, as Matthew tells us. The 17th century Puritan Thomas Brooks said, Satan paints sin with virtue's colors. 
Satan paints sin with virtuous colors. In our eyes, it looks okay because it looks virtuous. But in God's eyes, it is evil. But the second thing that I want you to know in verse 1 is there is something that's missing because verse 1 is going to jump right to verse 2 where God's going to call Samson. So we have Israel is enslaved to sin and therefore they are given over in servitude to the Philistines. And then do you remember what the third S has always been in the book of Judges? Supplication. They pray, they cry out, God help us, please deliver us. And then God sends, fourthly, S, a Savior. That third S is missing in verses 1 and 2. We just have a people group who is sinning before God and God delivering them over to their sinful desires. And when God does that, this time, for 40 years, the Israelites say, we're fine. In fact, we're going to see next week when uh, Samson is on the move. He's doing crazy things. He's destroying the Philistines. He was sent by God to do that work, to get the Philistines out. And as he starts doing that, the Israelites go to Samson and they say, hey, stop doing this. You're making the Philistines mad. And we really don't mind being enslaved to them. So could you please stop doing exactly what God called you to do? Please stop doing that because we're fine. This tells us a lot about sin. We're, we become okay with it. We become comfortable with it. You know what? It's fine. The Philistines aren't too bad. We'll serve them. We don't see any supplication. God, please deliver us. And yet we see deliverance. What does God do when he has a people who refuse to forsake false gods and have no desire to forsake the Philistines, a people that are so used to slavery that they don't even call out for relief? What does God do? God sends them a deliverer. This is grace that is greater than all of our sin, all of our stupidity, all of our foolishness, all of our pride, all of our sin. This is grace. If God's help were only given when we asked for it and had sense enough to seek it, then we would be destitute, desperate orphans in our sin. So this is a beautiful display of God's grace already in verse 1. We have sin, we have servitude, we have zero supplication. The people are fine in their sin, and yet God says, I'm not okay leaving you in your sin. And that's exactly what God has done with you and with me. We, in our sin, we were enemies of God, and God made a way to deliver us. God's grace is on display. Number two, God's powerful calling. We have God's amazing grace and God's powerful calling. This is verses two through seven. Verses two through seven, God's powerful calling. There was a certain man of Zorah, the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had borne no children. So Manoah and his wife live in a section of Israel that they should be able to call home, but the Philistines have taken over. So they have no land to call their own. And they also have no kids, no land, no kids. She is barren. This is a desperate situation. By the way, Manoah's wife is never named. So not only is she barren, she's also nameless. We talked about obscurity last week. It's a good thing to be faithful in the midst of being obscure. God does amazing things with obscure people. And that's, this is a, um, evidence number one that God's going to do that. We never find out what her name is. And yet she has amazing faith. God works precisely in these circumstances. A barren woman 
unable to have children, completely obscure and nameless, without a land to call her own, God says, this is exactly where I'm going to work. Samson's story is yet another account of God prefacing an exceptional work that he's going to do with exceptional difficulties. He did this with Gideon, right? Gideon, your army's too big. I want it to be pared down. I want it to be smaller so that I will get glory and it will be shown that there's no way you could have done this on your own. That's exactly why I believe the angel of the Lord in verse 3 is going to say what he says. The angel of the Lord shows up and appears to the woman and says, Behold now, you're barren. That's not what you say to somebody who is struggling to get pregnant. You don't look at them and go, you can't have kids, can you? You don't do that. What's Jesus doing here? This is the angel of the Lord. I believe it's a Christophany or a Theophany. I think this is Jesus, a pre-incarnate Jesus. Why does he say, you can't have kids? You're barren and you've borne no children. This is the same formula that Jesus himself uses when he's incarnate, when he says to his disciples, hey, have you caught anything yet? It's not a nice thing to say to disciples who have been working the nets for hours and hours, and he goes, hey, what's the catch? And they're like, did you really? Do, do you not see? Did you really have to ask that? Why is he saying that? Have you caught anything? No? Okay, is your situation destitute? Is it absolutely hopeless. Yes? Okay, that's where I can work. Same thing feeding the 5,000, right? Okay, what, what food do we have here? A few fish, a few loaves of bread. I want that on display so that when all of these 5,000, it's probably more like the 25,000, people are actually fed, Jesus has shown this is all we had. This is all we had. I think Jesus here, the pre-incarnate Jesus, is showing and pointing out the total inability and the total impossibility of giving birth. And yet he says, even though you're barren and you have borne no children, yet you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. God can do whatever he wants to do inside of his nature to make his purposes come about. A man by the name of Anselm in a thousand, right around a thousand AD said, God has, in the scriptures, made people in four different ways. God makes humans from a man and a woman. That's normally how he does it. Sometimes God makes humans neither from a man or a woman, as with Adam, just from dust. Here's a man. Number three, God makes humans uh, with, uh, without a woman, um, with only, only a man and no woman, and that's the case of Eve, right? We've got a man, we've got Adam, and we'll take a, a rib. And then sometimes God makes a human out of a woman with no man, as with Jesus. But God can do what he wants to do, even though it seems impossible. So here, the angel of the Lord highlights, you're barren, you have no children, but the impossible is going to be possible. You're going to conceive and give birth to a son. So since you're going to conceive and give birth to a son, uh, don't drink strong wine, strong drink, don't eat anything unclean. This is him going down the list of like, don't go on roller coasters, uh, don't do anything that will hurt you, you're pregnant, don't do anything. But it's also more than that because he's going to set up the fact that this baby is going to be born with the Nazarite vow, under the Nazarite vow, which you're not allowed to drink strong drink. You're not allowed to drink any alcoholic beverage as a, a person under a Nazarite vow. So this is the angel of the Lord saying, from birth, from the moment that this baby is born, 
this baby is going to be set apart under a Nazarite vow. We're going to talk about Nazarite vow. But because of that, don't drink anything or eat anything that is not acceptable in the Nazarite vow. Why? She's not going to partake of the Nazarite vow. But why does God tell her, don't eat or drink anything that's unacceptable in the Nazarite vow? Because it's going to go to your son. It's going to go to your baby. What you eat is going to go to the baby. It's just a beautiful side note. I was studying this and reading this when everything came out about New York and their abortion laws. And obviously, um, I think most people who are fine with abortion would willingly admit, yeah, it's a life. Most people. I don't think that if you tell them it's a human life and you prove that, I don't think that that will instantly just change. Oh, it's a life? Okay, I didn't know that. And change my mind. But what a beautiful place in Scripture. Very obscure, yet an implication in the Scriptures. That God says, you need to partake of the Nazarite vow yourself now because that child, all of his life, will be a Nazarite, uh, under the Nazarite vow. All of his life. So life does not begin when the baby comes out of the womb. Life begins in the womb. Life begins at conception. And that's why God says, hey, Manoah's wife, she doesn't have a name, Manoah's wife, don't do anything that would cancel out the Nazarite vow because from the moment that he is alive, he's going to partake of this. Life begins at conception. And therefore, any attempt to cut off that life at any point is murder. It's taking an innocent life. Nazarite vow, verse 5, 4, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. A Nazarite. Now, I hear Nazarite, and I instantly think of Jesus, who's a Nazarene. He's a Nazarite. But that's a different Nazarite uh, that's N-A-Z-A, because it's from Nazareth. This is N-A-Z-I. Nazarite, it comes from the Hebrew word nazir, which means to, to set yourself apart, or it can also be translated uncut or untrimmed. Um, this is a very specific uh, law that was given in Numbers chapter 6 that was given to everybody. Uh, Numbers chapter 5, we're not going to go there for the sake of time, but Numbers chapter 5 was all about the priests. Priests, these are your laws. This is how you live. This is what you're supposed to do. This is how you're consecrated to God. Numbers chapter 6 is kind of, if somebody were to say, well, I'm not a Levite. I'm not from the tribe of Levite, but I want to kind of partake in some of these things. What can I do? Numbers chapter 6 is for those people. Uh, it's the Nazarite vow. It's for anybody. Anybody can partake of a Nazarite vow. And a Nazarite vow is just simply saying, I'm going to set myself apart voluntarily and for a period of time. It's, it's really kind of what our fasting would look like. I'm going to set myself apart. I'm not going to drink strong drink. I'm not going to uh, even touch grapes in case they're fermented. I'm not going to touch any uh, dead animals or eat anything that's unclean. And I'm not going to cut my hair. Just for a period of time and devote myself. It was a sign of devoting yourself to the Lord. Jewish historians tell us that many Jews, as they were preparing to go to war, would take upon themselves the Nazarite vow. I'm consecrating myself to prepare to go out to war and fight on God's behalf. But you can do it for any reason. 
There's no great products. You can't cut your hair. You can't touch anything unclean. And after Numbers chapter 6, there is no mention of the Nazarite vow at all until Judges 13, until Samson. And it's very interesting because the Nazarite vow explicitly in Numbers chapter 6 was a voluntary thing you did if you wanted to do it, and it was for a period of time. You just picked a period of time of fasting from these things. But Samson's going to take this the exact opposite. Samson didn't volunteer to be a Nazarite. God said, you're going to take this. At the moment of conception, you are a Nazarite. I'm, I'm going to give you the Nazarite vow. So he didn't choose it. He's born into it. And it's not a defined temporary amount of time. God says you're going to be a Nazarite for the entirety of your life. So God is setting this person apart. But the entirety of the Nazarite vow, the whole purpose was to consecrate yourself, even in the word Nazir, to set yourself apart for some specific activity or mission that God had for you. That's the purpose of a Nazarite vow. So the question is, what is Samson's Nazarite vow for? For what is he being consecrated? Verse 5. He'll be a Nazarite to God, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. God is setting apart Samson from the moment he is conceived to deliver his people. He has been called from the moment of conception to be a deliverer. What does Manoah's wife do with this? Verse 6. The woman came out, told her husband, and said, A man of God came to me. And his appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God. Very awesome. And I didn't ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. I don't know how many times you've had these conversations with your friends or maybe with your spouse. I have these conversations a lot. Like after a doctor visit, my wife comes home, the kids have gone to see the doctor, and I say, did you ask this? And she goes, no, I didn't think about asking that. What about this? Didn't think about asking that one either. What about this? Uh, I think that's what's happening here. Manoah's going to say, what was his name? Well, he didn't tell me. Um, Where was he from? Uh, I forgot to ask. Um, It's just kind of down the line. And Manoah's wife is totally fine to just receive the information and say, this is good enough for me. It's very interesting because Manoah himself is going to struggle with that. He's not going to be able to say, this is good enough. He's going to want more. But Manoah's wife says, I'm fine. This clearly was a man from God, very awesome. And I just took what he said, and I was happy with that. She believed, just like Mary would believe 1,200 years later when an angel visited her. It should remind us of John the Baptist, born to Elizabeth, or Jesus, born to Mary. The angel always goes to the woman first, and then the woman goes to the husband And many times the angel has to go to the husband and say, yeah, your your wife was right. (laughs) She was right. I know you didn't believe her, but she was right. So we see God's powerful call upon upon Samson. Um, Verse 7, he has said to me, behold, you shall conceive. This is Manoah's wife again saying to Manoah uh, what God had said to her. You shall conceive and give birth to a son, and now you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. From the moment that he's born in the womb to the day of his death, from the moment he's conceived, from the moment he's alive, we see God's amazing call. Number three, we see God's kind condescension. We see God's kind condescension. God could have just left it there. God could have left it at, I told Manoah's wife what was going to happen. She knows whether or not Manoah believes it or understands it, that's fine, but I've told her we're good to go. But God's not going to stop there. This is verses 8 through 14. Manoah entreated the Lord, and he said, 
Oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come to us again, that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. This is Manoah reading what to expect when you're expecting, right? This is him saying, what are we going to do? We haven't had a kid this long. I don't know how to take care of a kid. What am I supposed to do with this son? Now, there are some people that would say he has unbelief here. This is an evidence of his unbelief. He's saying, God, is this really going to happen? That's not at all what this says. This says that he believes God's going to give them a son. He just wants further information. What's this son going to do? What's he going to be? And what does God do? Verse 9, first two words. God listened. God listened. One pastor says it this way. We may have relegated God's hearing of our prayers to our of course category, but biblical prayers do not regard it as so routine. It's a miracle. It's a wonder. It's a marvelous work of grace that God even hears us at all. The fact that God listens to the voice of Manoah is miraculous. The fact that God listens to you and to me is a miracle. He condescends to us. He doesn't have to listen to us, and yet he condescends. He lowers himself down and and says, what is it that you're saying? He hears. He listens. Has prayer become an of course category for you? Well, of course, I pray and he listens. Has it become routine? For me, one of my least favorite chores in the entire world is taking out the trash because it never ends. I, I will literally go out the front door with a bag of trash and I'll put the trash in the garbage and I come back and there's a bag outside of the door. And I think, I just, didn't I just, how is this not, how, I, I'm shocked at how much trash we can make. And I don't like taking the trash out. And it's become routine and I don't see it as a blessing. But if I think theologically about my garbage, the only reason that I have something to throw away is because I have anything at all. A bunch of banana peels. The only reason why I have a banana peel to throw away is because I was able to eat a banana. And perhaps if I were to think more theologically about my garbage, I would be thankful for the routine of throwing away that which God had graciously given to me. I think the same thing is true about our prayers. God hears us. We need to think more theologically about the wonder of God listening to sinful humanity. Again, the same pastor says, when God listens to the voice of Manoah or even to our voice, we must never respond with a yawn. We will trivialize prayer when we forget the repeated miracle it involves, the gracious condescension of the King of glory who stoops down to listen to our verbs and our nouns, our adverbs and our questions, our groans and our tears. There's never been a prayer uttered that God didn't hear. God listened to Manoah's cry. Therefore, we should call upon the Lord, knowing that he will hear us as well. God listens, verse 9, to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of the Lord came again to the woman. Angel's leaving. Manoah prays. God says, hey, go back. Okay, I'm going back. Goes back to the woman. But again... Manoah, her husband, is not with her. So the woman ran quickly and said, he's here, he's here. Behold, the man who came the other day, he's appeared to me. Manoah gets up quickly, follows his wife, comes to the man and says to him, and there's no inflection whatsoever. I want to know how he said this. Because all he knows is 
this guy is awesome, he's clearly an angel, and he gave us impossible news. So does Manoah say, are you the man that spoke with my wife? Does he say, hey, are you the guy that spoke to my wife? How does he ask this question? I, I don't know, but I love how the angel of the Lord answers. My Bible says, I am. Literally, in Hebrew, it's just, I. Um, hmm, I. It's, it's me. And he says, now, when your words come to pass. So again, no unbelief here. Manoah says, I know your words are going to come to pass. And when they do, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? Isn't this just like a dude? It's, hey, you, you meet somebody. Hey, what's your name? What do you do for work? That's all he's saying. Hey, what's my son going to do for work? Can you just tell me what's going to happen to my son? Now, I think it, it's a little bit further because, again, he has the Nazarite vow in his head. So my son's going to be set apart for something. What is that something? Can you tell me what that something's going to be? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, let the woman pay attention to all that I said. I, I already told her. She shouldn't eat anything that comes from the vine, nor drink wine or strong drink, nor eat anything unclean. Just let her observe all that I've commanded. Manoah is asking for more information, not out of unbelief. He just says, hey, I'd love to get some more information from you. Can you give me some more instructions? Give me some more guidelines. I would love to have some more direction about my son. And God says, I already said everything to your wife. And he repeats the exact same thing that he said. The implication of this for our lives is enormous. How many times do we go before the Lord saying, can you just give me more? Not even out of unbelief. Out of genuine belief, God, you're sovereign. I trust your word. Can you just please direct me? Give me guidance. Give me something. God shows up and God says, I'm not going to give you any more information, but I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to be here. I'm going to show up. I'm here. But no new, new information. The angel of the Lord returns to talk to Manoah, but doesn't give him anything new. He just gives him himself. God does this with you and with me as well. God says to us, in essence, you just need to know me and my character far more than you need more information. All the rules in this world will not give you enough guidance or direction. We, as Christians, make innumerable decisions as we go through our day. And not every single one of them has a chapter and a verse. Sometimes we wish they did, right? Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. And God says to us exactly what he says to Manoah. You don't need any new information. You just need a revelation of me. Do you trust me? I will give you myself. We think we need more rules, but what we really need is just to know God better. God does not and will not give us instructions for every single step that we're going to take. He's going to give us something much better. He's going to give us himself. With every step that we take, he will be there. And he's going to say, do you trust me? We see this even in, in parenting, right? When our kids are little, there's an instruction about every single thing that they are able to do. Sometimes I have to make rules for my children that I didn't know I had to make a rule about. Like, you know what? Don't eat a worm. If you see the worm because of the flooding of the, the rain, Ethan, don't eat the worm. Like, I didn't know that that had to be a command 
that I was going to have to tell my children. So you make laws, you make rules, you make all sorts of regulations, and you hope that as they grow up, if they understand you and they understand the wisdom, Lord willing, that you are able to give to them, they're not going to need rules as much. You can taper off the rules and you can just say, what do you think mom would say? What do you think dad would say? Well, what do you think they would do? And hopefully they understand where those rules come from. God does the exact same with us, not giving us a rule for every little thing, giving us himself in every little thing. So the angel of the Lord says that. I've already told her, and that's all that you need to know. So we see God's amazing grace, his powerful call, his kind condescension. And finally, number four, his awesome glory. God's awesome glory. Verse 15, so the angel of the Lord is there. He kindly condescended yet again. And so Manoah says, if you're going to hang out, you know, let's take care of you. If you, wanna, if, if you have a guest come over to your house today, you say, hey, would you like anything to drink? Would you like some water? Maybe I can brew some coffee or some tea. Back then, apparently, it was, hey, would you like a goat? Um, if you're going to hang out for a while, please let us detain you so that we may prepare a young goat for you. We'll make you a goat. Verse 16, the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was speaking to the angel of the Lord. He's speaking to a pre-incarnate Jesus, which, very interesting, a pre-incarnate version of Jesus is different than the incarnate version of Jesus. Because a pre-incarnate version of Jesus, Jesus, before he is birthed by Mary, says, I'm not eating with sinners. You're, you and I are different, and I'm not going to eat with you. And yet, when Jesus is born of Mary, he eats with sinners and tax collectors. But here he says, no, 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 you offer it to the Lord. You're misunderstanding. I'm not just a human here. You're misunderstanding. So Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what's your name? So that when your words come to pass, we can honor you. But the angel, said to the, the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is, my Bible says, wonderful. Uh, my name is so great that you couldn't even understand it. Um, this is the same word, wonderful. It's the same Hebrew word used in Psalm 139, verse 6. I know that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your wonders are so great. I know that full well. I don't even know what to do with all of your wonders. You're so amazing. It's beyond me. I can't fully grasp it. Dale Ralph Davies says, If we recognize that God's character and his ways are wonderful, we may find ourselves more often baffled by him than sure of him. We will edge toward a cautious humility in estimating his designs and find a holy reticence chastening our remarks to other saints in their throes of distress. Manoah in essence, is saying, I want to get a handle on who you are. And the angel of the Lord says, you won't understand who I am. You can't fully grasp who I am. So, verse 19, Manoah says, okay. Takes the young goat with the grain offering, offers, offers it to the Lord on a rock. And the Lord performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. Wonders, same word in verse 18 for wonderful. Something that cannot fully be comprehended. Why? Well, because, verse 20, it came about that when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven, that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. So they build an altar, they put wood on the altar, they light the fire, and the angel of the Lord is watching this the whole time and says, all right, I'm out. 
and he steps up onto the altar, into the fire, and shoots up through the fire. That's why it says it's a wonder that they saw. People don't do that. People don't just walk up into a, a pillar of fire and just go, bye, whoosh, straight up to the sky. And so they say, uh, verse, uh, middle of verse 20, when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Okay, w- clearly this guy is not just a human. So Manoah says to his wife, we will surely die. We're surely going to die. The angel of the Lord didn't appear, verse 21, to his wife or to Manoah again, but Manoah knew it was an angel. Only an angel, only the angel of the Lord can do what just happened. And so Manoah turns to his wife and says, we're dead. You cannot look at God and live. You cannot see God and live. This is Exodus chapter 33, verse 20. You can't stare directly at God and live. You're going to die if you stare at his glory. So I, I just, again, I picture this scene. Manoah and his wife make this altar, light this thing on fire. They're watching it burn. Angel Lord says, all right, I'm out. Walks into the fire, shoots up in the flame, and they just fall down on their faces. And I see Manoah's wife say, see, I told you he was somebody awesome. And Manoah's like, I know, I, I, I'm sorry I didn't believe you. And then he says, honey, we're dead. Honey, we're dead. We saw something glorious, we're dead. And as they're lying there, flame going, she turns to Manoah and she says, verse 23, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. I just, I love wives. They're so helpful. Because as Manoah is freaking out, saying, we're going to die, she, in her logic, says, wait, that makes no sense, buddy. I'm sorry, Manoah. But if we were going to die, number one, why wouldn't he have just killed us when he showed up? Number two, he gave us a promise that I'm going to have a son. We both believe that promise. And therefore, at the very least, I have nine more months to live because... I have to give birth to this boy. Manoah's wife is the critical thinker. Manoah's going crazy. I'm not going to die. God's glory is amazing. We sung about it. Rejoice with trembling. Psalm chapter 2, verse 11, rejoice with trembling. It comes from that verse. Manoah had amazing reverence for God, but he felt no comfort inside that reverence. I believe that Christians struggle to one side or the other with with God uh, in this area. You need fear in the presence of God. You need an awesome, healthy, reverential, I'm terrified to be in the presence of the God who made me. I'm a sinner and he's holy. You need that. But you also need comfort in the gospel that Jesus has called you brother or sister, has brought you into the family of God, and that you are a joint heir with Jesus, that the Father looks upon you with favor and kindness and love. And so there's a tension that needs to be perfectly held in the middle. I think too often Christians swing to one side or the other. You know, we go, we go to this side that you have like that shirt that says, God's my homeboy, right? He's just, he's my homie, we're BFFs, and you, you just juvenilize who God is. 
But then you have this other side that is so reverential, so terrified that there's no desire to draw near to him and have a relationship with him. I think we see that in Manoah. Manoah is struggling here. Just pure awe and fear without any comfort. Because we have the gospel, we can have comfort and rejoice even while we are trembling. So, verse 24, the woman gives birth to a son, names him Samson, which just means a little son, not a male offspring, but, you know, ball in the sky. Um, a, a little son, a child of the son, which is very interesting. I don't want to make too much out of this, but it's interesting that verse 24 says he was named Samson, and verse 25 says the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him in Mahane Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Between Zorah and Eshtaol is a city called Beit Shemesh, and Beit Shemesh, literally Beth Shemesh, Beth Lehem, Beth means house, Lehem means uh, life or bread or something that's given to us that we can enjoy, satisfaction. Um, Beth Shemesh, Beth is house, and Shemesh is, is sun, the orb in the sky. So I, I wonder if somehow, even though Manoah and his wife trust in God and love him, if somehow there's a kind of a polytheism that's crept into their cultural understanding of this is the house of the sun. There's a sun god, and we're going to name Samson after the sun god. Again, I don't want to make too much because it's not there entirely, but just those connections makes me wonder. And you do, you do kind of have to wonder at their parenting, right? When, when they start doing some of the things that they do, you have to wonder, why, why are you allowing this? Why, why aren't you stepping in? But we can say explicitly and without a shadow of a doubt, They trust God. They trust him. And Samson is born. And God blesses them. God blesses him. And we skip from the nativity of Samson all the way to Samson at about age 31. It just skips. We don't really have a a middle similar to Jesus. In fact, Samson follows so much uh, about what Jesus Uh, himself went through. Samson had a miraculous birth. There was no reason why his mom should be pregnant, but she got pregnant, just like Mary. Samson's birth was prophesied by an angel, just like Jesus. Samson was called from his birth, just like Jesus, set apart from cradle to the grave with a mission. Samson's uh, in very amazing company. John the Baptist, Jesus, very amazing company. Manoah's wife, who is nameless, is in very amazing company. Sarah uh, with Isaac, Hannah with Samuel, Elizabeth with John the Baptist, our God is the God of the impossible. But there's a difference. Obviously, there's differences between Jesus and Samson, but there's a a very interesting difference. Because when Mary and Elizabeth and Sarah and Hannah were all given their babies, they were given a gift that brought blessing and honor to them. Because they were considered cursed. They could not have children. They were barren. And so as they received these children, they were wonderfully welcomed with joy and and honor. But the birth of Jesus brought Mary disgrace. While other saviors were gaining honor and glory in doing their work, Jesus lost all of his honor and his glory to do his. And while Samson's deliverance is amazing... It's an incomplete deliverance. The last judge in the book of Judges just cannot get the job done. 
That's why God's the hero, because God gets the job done by sending Jesus to conquer sin, to conquer death, and to bring many sons and daughters to glory. Now, the last thing in closing that I want to say is this is an amazing birth announcement. This is just incredible. I don't think anybody in this room has had a birth announcement like this, where God shows up, tells you some miracle is going to happen, and then shoots through a flame of fire that you offered to him on an altar. This is amazing. But brothers and sisters, I believe that we have been given an even more miraculous announcement of our birth. Not our first birth, but our second birth. The announcement that's given in John chapter 3, that we are born again by the Spirit working in us. And we have been consecrated as well from the womb. We didn't even know it when we were growing up, but we were consecrated before the foundation of the earth with the job to do. Though none of us are Nazarite vow people, we've been consecrated by God with an announcement over our birth that we have been called by God to be witnesses. We've been empowered by the Spirit just like Samson will be. And he's just empowered in little moments, but we've been empowered because we've been indwelt. And so as you read chapter 13 and you say, man, this is amazing. What a great birth announcement. Just realize if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a greater birth announcement hanging over your head. Born again by the work of the Holy Spirit, brought to newness of life, though an enemy now made a friend and called to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, there is grace to be understood. As you realize your sin, just like the Israelites, stuck in sin, God hands them over to servitude to their sin, enslaved in their sin. Israel didn't even cry out, and God said, I love you so much, I'm not going to let you continue. But if you were to cry out today and say, God, please break the cycle of sin, break the cycle of rebellion, I come to you in full repentance, clinging to the work of Jesus. He crushed sin, he conquered it, he bore the penalty, and he rose again after he died. He rose again to newness of life, conquering sin, death, and the penalty of our sin. We live in grace. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you know the grace that is yours in Christ. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there is grace for you. So come today and follow Jesus only by his amazing grace. Father, we thank you so much for these uh, amazing, precious realities that are ours in Christ Jesus because of the work that he did. Thank you for calling us for the birth announcement over us, which is marvelous. It's unbelievable that you would do that. But you've called us, you've set us apart You've declared that we are yours and you made the vow, the covenant over our lives through your blood so that we could be forgiven, free, and set apart with power to do the work that you've called us to do. God, I pray that we would live in that grace this morning and that we would worship you and thank you for it. Let's stand.